Father, I ask that you'd come and help me to weigh my words carefully and not say anything that would be unhelpful or foolish or unbiblical or imbalanced or proud. I pray that you would grant me a discernment of your leading and help me not to be intimidated by any issue that would or should be spoken of. And I pray that there would be in the room now a very deep susceptibility to being made bold. And any preacher who is fearful of losing his job or certain kind of remuneration package or standing among other clergy or an advancement, I pray that those kinds of fears would be destroyed and that you would great, great courage give. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is remarkable that uh, this text that we've been working over, both of us, has a, a verse in it that neither of us has done anything with. We, we both read it and neither have said anything about it. And so uh, I will read it again. Namely, verse 3 of 1 Timothy 4. And this is my first reason for why the issue of courage is on my front burner most places where I'm going these days, as well as the Bethlehem Conference is all about courage. This uh, coming February, it's called Courage in the Christian Ministry. The verse is verse 3 of chapter 4. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears... They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings and will turn away from listening to the truth. That bodes ill for you. and It bodes well for seeker-sensitive preaching. Preaching to felt needs is the easiest thing in the world. Preaching to create New felt needs that corresponds to real needs is the hardest thing in the world. Get that? The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings. What does that mean? How relevant can you get? It is hard work to preach in such a way as to create felt needs that correspond to real needs. My daddy, who's having had surgery at 7 o'clock this morning, and to whom I will fly in Greenville, South Carolina, after I preach here on Sunday morning, has said to me, he's an evangelist, preached for 50 years, Johnny, It's easy to get people saved. It's hard to get people lost. That's an overstatement. The first one was. But it makes the point. It's hard to get people lost today. It's hard to get them lost. There's a lot of thought that people have so much bad feeling today, all you need to do is preach to help them feel good, and that's 
rescue. It's not rescue because they're not feeling bad because they've offended God. How many people feel bad in America because they dishonored their creator by paying no attention to him? They feel bad because they're divorced or they feel bad because the kids are leaving home or they feel bad because they've got cancer or they feel bad because they've lost their job. That's not something we can preach to if we want to preach the gospel. The problem with human beings is that they're damned. There's a there's a sign on Hiawatha Avenue, and they're all over the Twin Cities. They're probably here, too. I don't know. Big black signs with white letters. I love you. I love you. I love you. God. And I said to Noel the other day, after we were coming back from our little day off date down to Cap's barbecue, I read that, and I said to her in the car, I think that is a totally misleading thing to say in the Twin Cities. Because I think what it says, driving down Hiawatha Avenue, away from the airport, or going the other way toward the airport, is, you're okay, I support you, I'm on your side, which is wrong. God is angry at sinners. God is angry every day at the unrighteous. Well, that doesn't itch anybody's ears. Nobody's going to accumulate you for their pastorate, perhaps, unless God gives you a way to preach that truth in such a way as to awaken felt needs that correspond to real needs that then get met and lead to everlasting joy. I'm a Christian hedonist, through and through. And if you ask me to define Christian hedonism, or just hedonism as it occurs in that sentence, it is a life devoted to pleasure. That's all I am. I'm a dyed-in-the-wool, sold-out Christian hedonist. I live for pleasure. Not 99% pleasure, and not pleasure that lasts only 800 years and then lets you down, but 100% proof pleasure and everlasting pleasure. And there is one place it can be found, according to Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures Forevermore, and if that's true, I know what I want. God. And I'll do anything to get God. I'll die to have God. And you can preach the anger of God in that context and have self-centered sinners awaken to joy. Real joy. So my first reason for talking about courage is that the people that are out there that need the gospel and the people that are in your churches that need the whole counsel of God will get itching ears and they'll only want people to tickle them. Here's another reason. We live in a culture that is saturated 
with uh, relativism and subjectivism. Relativism means there's no absolutes and what's good for you may be good for you. It doesn't have to be good for me. And what's right for you may be right for you, but it doesn't have to be right for me. And what's beautiful for you doesn't have to be beautiful for me. What's ugly for you doesn't have to be ugly for me. Because there is no standard to which we all bow. And what I mean by subjectivism is that in that in that milieu... My subjectivity, my subjectivity is God. Goddess choice. I thought again about the title of this component of the conference here, uh, preaching God in a man-centered age. And I thought about primates first because I watched CNN a little while ago. But then here was my other thought about that piece of the title. It's really not right if by man you mean corporate humanity. What you have to mean in order to make it a culturally accurate title is man meaning me. We used to be, the Enlightenment was a kind of man-centered thing. But today it is self-centered. The 20th century will be the century of the self. It will also be the most violent century and deadly century, unless it gets worse in the next one. But more people have been slaughtered by man in this century than any other century. And it is Self to the core. Self. Got magazines named self. You've got self-esteem, which is the gospel in America. And therefore, relativism is a very fitting view of life for those for whom self is God. Because you're not going to submit to what anybody else says. Who if they doesn't matter if they're God or man. So you can't say man-centered in the sense that What's good for humanity is what I believe in, baloney. Nobody without God believes what's good for humanity. They believe in what's good for me. Now, that's the kind of world we uh, live in. And you're called upon to do what Tom just said, preach in such a way that it claims to be God's word. Good night. You know what that's going to be called? Arrogance. We we take that word God in the title, preaching God in a man-centered age. What that means, according to John Armstrong's theology, is preaching the God of the scriptures, preaching preaching God, not just doorknobs. My higher power is doorknobs. Or my higher power is whatever. He means biblical vision of God, which says it's this way and not that way. There are denials as well as affirmations. It's got contours. There's character to this God. He's identifiable. His name is Jesus. 
And if you don't believe in Jesus, you don't have the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. He who denies the Son does not have the Father. Preach that in Temple Israel on Hennepin Avenue. Or just in the hearing of Rabbi Joseph Edelheit, which I did in the newspaper two weeks ago. Which is an immediate front burner issue with me. I mean, you know who got all this started, the Southern Baptist rascals. Bless their hearts. They're doing a lot of things right these days. Um, but what they did during Rosh Hashanah, you know what that means, don't you? Rosh, head, Hashanah, the new, the new year, the, the highest days of the Jewish calendar. They put out this public statement that all Southern Baptists, all 15 million of them, should pray for their Jewish friends to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and be saved. <gasps> well, that hit the Wall Street Journal, hit every magazine, hit the editorial page of the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And there was one word for it everywhere. Arrogance. Well, well, well. I read this editorial. Where is it here? I read this editorial in the Tribune. Now, that's my newspaper. I live in this city. And... Uh, I've never had an article published by the Minneapolis Tribune in my life. I've written letters for years. I've lived there for 25 years, and they've never printed a letter that I've written. Not one. So I said to my people, the Sunday after that appeared, I read it to them, part of it, and said why I thought it was tragic to call arrogant the preaching of the gospel to the Jewish people and inviting them to trust their Messiah as arrogant. And I said, I'm going to write a response to this. I've never had a response published in my life. Would you pray? So we had 1,800 people praying. And they published it the next Saturday. So here it is. This is what it looked like. They gave it that much space. Hands. There's the title. There's the article. On the Saturday opinion page. And I said things like, like this. Christianity is defined by Jewish scriptures and the New Testament. According to the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel. He is the yes to all God's promises. He is the Messiah. Give a bunch of texts. Actually, just like Bible verses. They included Bible verses. <laughs> to reject him is to reject God the Father. And to confess him as Lord of your life is to be reconciled to God. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. I just preached. They printed it. That's a miracle. Well, now the issue of courage and comes. Because the fallout from that was really quite ugly. And uh, I'll give you a few tastes. It is in this appeared in the next Saturday. They always correlate Saturdays with Saturdays. So this is the responses coming out. There's a bunch of them. It is intolerably patronizing to tell adherents of another religion that there is no salvation outside our faith community. That's one. I am intolerably patronizing. Another one said, arrogant is about the nicest thing I could think to say about such a belief. Those are two. 
I happened to go that week down to Southern Seminary where good old Al Mohler got himself in trouble also writing in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, the responses that hit Al, Al told me that the viciousness of the criticism he received was worse on this issue than when he took a stand on gay rights and so on. And the letters in the newspaper of the Louisville uh, Courier Journal went like this. Um, His idolatrous focus on propositional truth is, in my judgment, a retreat from modernity. I want people to know that not all Baptists embrace my way or no way approach to religion. God's light shines from many candles. And this Southern Baptist focus is simplistic, insensitive, and arrogant. And then, here's the one that saddened me most. This was two weeks later. Now, our church is downtown Minneapolis. It's four blocks from the Metrodome. You can walk to downtown. And so I'm included in what's called the downtown clergy, which means the old hundred-year-old churches. There's a Presbyterian, Westminster Presbyterian. There's St. Mark's Episcopal. And there's the Basilica of St. Mary. And there's uh, Plymouth Congregational. All these mainline Protestant and Catholic churches. I used to eat breakfast with these guys. And I've stopped going to the meetings, and I won't tell you why, because it would be indecent. But they wrote, teamed up, they teamed up to write a letter, and all of them signed it. I'll just read you a piece of it here, because here's the grievous thing, the grievous thing. Here are the shepherds of the leading churches of Minneapolis. Now, they're not the most dynamic churches in Minneapolis. Those churches are all out in the suburbs. And we got hundreds of them in the Twin Cities. Great churches. But these are big, ancient, esteemed. If anybody at the newspaper wants a clergy opinion, they go to one of these guys. And they're leading thousands of people and representing Jesus Christ. The relationship of Christians to Jews begins, as Reverend John Piper allows in his October 2nd counterpoint, With Judaism of Jesus. But Christianity, while it is Judaism's child, is not necessarily its fulfillment. To suggest that Judaism is somehow incomplete without Jesus is as inappropriate as a child saying to a parent, without me, your life has no meaning. Further appeals to New Testament texts, as one finds in Reverend Piper's essay, while appropriate for dialogue within the Christian family, do little to further the cause of Christian Jewish amity. Our two traditions now stand side by side, the one acknowledging its debt to the other, but each appreciative that God has seen fit to bless the world with diverse families of faith. True interfaith dialogue is possible only when neither of the parties try to win over or save the other. Such attempts imply an assumed superiority, and that is no basis for real conversation. That's really sad. That is really, really sad. What I'm illustrating is the relativism of our day. 
which has penetrated to the heart of most mainline denominations and is trying to penetrate other denominations as well. Let me illustrate it with a few quotations from contemporary wise spokesmen. Here's a a word from Michael Novak, who won the Templeton Prize for uh, the Advancement of Religion Um, 1994, he said, totalitarianism, as Mussolini defined it, is the will to power unchecked by any regard for truth. To surrender the claims of truth upon humans is to surrender earth to thugs. It is to make a mockery of those who endured agonies for truth at the hands of torturers. Vulgar relativism is an invisible gas, odorless, deadly, that is now polluting every free society on earth. It is a gas that attacks the central nervous system of moral striving. The most perilous threat to the free society today, therefore, is neither political or economic. It is the poisonous, corrupting culture of relativism. So he's coming at it from a political side and saying, if anything destroys society and leads to totalitarianism, it will be relativism. Back in 1979, there was a law professor, Arthur Leff, who delivered a uh, lecture at Duke University in which he laid down the torture of his soul in wanting there to be absolutes and knowing that there are no absolutes and what it meant to him. Let me read you this kind of soul-bearing that was most remarkable. I want to believe, and so do you, he said to the students, I want to believe, and so do you, in a complete transcendent and imminent set of propositions about right and wrong, findable rules that authoritatively and unambiguously direct us how to live righteously. I also want to believe, and so do you, in no such thing but rather that we are wholly free, not only to choose for ourselves what we ought to do, but to decide for ourselves individually and as a species what we ought to be. What we want, heaven help us, is simultaneously to be perfectly ruled and perfectly free. That is, at the same time, to discover the right and the good and to create it. And then he closed like this. All I can say is this. It looks as if we are all we have. Given what we know about ourselves and each other, this is an extraordinarily unappetizing prospect. Looking around the world, it appears that if all men are brothers, the ruling model is Cain and Abel. Neither reason nor love nor even terror seems to have worked to make us good. And worse than that, there is no reason why anything should. Only if ethics were something unspeakable by us could law be unnatural and therefore unchallengeable. As things stand now, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. Those who stood up and denied or died resisting Hitler, Stalin, Amin, and Pol Pot 
and General Custer too, have earned salvation. Those who acquiesce deserve to be damned. There is in the world such a thing as evil. Altogether now, says who? God help us. That's the end of his talk. The grand says who? Says who? In this milieu of relativism, which has penetrated to the core of the church as well as the world, you are going to need courage to preach the truth the way it ought to be preached. This means controversy. I just came through one, am in one in my denomination. And frankly, I am stunned at the height to which the avoidance of controversy is elevated as a supreme value. I am stunned at the implicit, though it would be totally denied, truthlessness of that value. Oh, that we would go back and read our Machen from 80 years ago. Let me read you this. This is from Machen, 1932, in London. Men tell us that our preaching should be positive, not negative. Well, there's some truth. There's a lot of truth. That we can preach the truth without attacking error. But if we follow that advice, we shall have to close our Bible and desert its teachings. The New Testament is a polemic book almost from beginning to end. Some years ago, I was in a company of teachers, Machen says, of the Bible in colleges and other educational institutions of America. One of the most eminent theological professors in the country made an address. In it, he admitted that there were unfortunate controversies about doctrines in the epistles of Paul. But, said he, in effect, the real essence of Paul's teaching is found in the hymn to Christian love in the 13th chapter of the first Corinthians. And we can avoid controversy today if we will only devote the chief attention to that inspiring hymn. In reply, I am bound to say, Machen goes on, that the example was singularly ill-chosen. That hymn to Christian love is in the midst of a great polemic passage. It would never have been written if Paul had been opposed to controversy with error in the church. It was because his soul was stirred within him by a wrong use of spiritual gifts that he was able to write that glorious hymn. So it is always in the church. Every really great Christian utterance, it may almost be said, is born in controversy. It is when men have felt compelled to take a stand against error that they have risen to the really great heights in the celebration of truth. So my point here is to say, Not only do we have a biblical warning that in the last days or the days will come 
when there will be itching ears that will accumulate teachers that say what we want to hear. And therefore, if you say what's the full counsel of God, you may have to bear some consequences. Therefore, courage, courage. But also that we live in a day in which relativism is the air we breathe and selfism and subjectivism guards relativism by saying what I want. Or maybe we should say relativism preserves selfism by saying that's the philosophy that lets me choose what I want. And we, it's just interesting. This is so interesting in relation to something Tom closed with. You, you said something so penetrating. I just want to say it again so that we get it. He said that it is a humble thing to submit to an objective Word outside yourself and to preach it instead of creating out of your own head ideas. Now, that's exactly the opposite of what contemporary views of humility and pride are today. Say what you want to say, Tom, and you'll be humble. But tell me that I should believe what you say and you're arrogant. Everybody saying what they want to say is a humble state of affairs. Anybody telling anybody else to believe what they ought to believe is arrogant. That is a total redefinition of humility and pride from what it is in the Bible and what it is in reality. Which led me a few weeks ago to write this little article for my church news thing. That goes out each week. What is humility? And I quoted uh, Chesterton, who got it so right. But I want to make sure that we get this, because uh, you are going to be accused of arrogance if you preach. You're simply going to be accused of arrogance if you preach. Anybody that stands up and says, thus saith the Lord, will be scoffed at, sneered at, considered preacher. What then is humility? I'll just give you five brief statements of what humility is. This is a parenthesis in my message, but I, I uh, don't take the time to do it anyway. Number one, humility begins with a sense of subordination to God in Christ. A disciple is not above his teacher. So we go under the Bible, we go under Christ, we go under God. And we don't presume to say as our own ideas, we go under. And if somebody can prove us wrong, we will submit to the authority. That's, that's the beginning of humility. Secondly, humility does not feel a right to any better treatment than Jesus got. So when you are persecuted, you don't huff and puff and say, you have, you have no right to treat me that way. George Otis said, God never called his people to a fair fight. If you insist on the fight being fair, you'll never preach the gospel. You'll ruin the gospel by your insistence on your own rights. You don't have any rights under God. You're a servant. You're a slave. You go where he tells you to go. You say what he tells you to say. And you take your lumps, like it says in 1 Peter 2, if we endure suffering for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if, when you do right, you suffer for it, it is a grace from God. That's exactly the opposite of the way the world thinks. The only 
suffering that you should have is undeserved suffering. And when it comes, you don't have any right to be treated any better than Jesus. And you just accept it. That's your lot. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Thirdly, humility asserts truth not to bolster the ego or get control, but as a service to Christ and love to the adversary. I will look any Jewish person in the face who's calling me arrogant and say, what you call arrogance in my directing you to Jesus Christ as your Messiah and your Savior, I call love. Fourth, humility knows it is dependent on grace for all knowing and believing. And fifth, humility knows it is fallible. Yes, the world likes that one. And so considers criticism and learns from it. Considers and listens to all criticism and learns from it. But also knows that God has made provision for human conviction and that he calls us to persuade others with it. Now I call you to courage in the face of this kind of culture and this biblical warning. Preach the truth boldly. Take stands in newspapers. Take stands at rallies. Go to jail for the unborn. Take some radical steps to put truth before the people. Do something weird and crazy. Take a sabbatical and go to Saudi Arabia. Or something. What is today? Is today Thursday? Okay. Last night, I was teaching on suffering at my church. And I quoted this text from Hebrews 11, where it says that Moses considered reproaches suffered for the Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And I paused and I said, does anybody feel that your life, your Christian life is poor right now? Poor? Well, you want some riches? Go out and get some reproaches. Come on Tuesday night and go knock on doors with us in in, uh, Cedar Riverside. Get some reproaches and then you'll be rich, be able to sleep. With mounds of riches around your bed that night. We wonder why we're poor. It's because we bought the American dream of prosperity and comfort and ease. And don't realize that riches are in reproaches. The book ends. Chapter 13. Let us go with him outside the camp. Bearing the reproach which he bore. For here we have no lasting city, but we look for a city that is to come. Well, I've got 15 minutes to exposit my text, which is Matthew 10, verses 24 to 31. And that's all I need is 15 minutes. I want you to read this with me. And I want to give you five 
incentives to be courageous that Jesus gave to me about nine years ago. Well, it was a little longer than that. That just set me aflame in the cause of pro-life back in the late 80s and early 90s when things were really popping in our city. There were all kinds of rescues going on and we were a part of that and and at each stage, there's been a different controversial issue, it seems like, from one to the other. We move, some things come to the front burner, and other things recede. But if you love truth, and if you believe people's lives are at stake in regard to truth, you will always be in some kind of controversy. How you comport yourself in that controversy is very crucial, and courage is one key element of it, and humility is another. Let me read this text. This is... Matthew 10, 24 to 31, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those who are of his own household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, utter in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim upon the housetops and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall from the ground without your father's will. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. Now, there's no doubt what the main point of this text is, right? Three times he says it. Verse 26, so have no fear of them. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body. Verse 31, fear not, therefore, you are of much more value than many sparrows. Fear not is the main point of this text. Three times he gives the imperative. Don't fear, don't fear, don't fear, which is translated into my sermon. Be courageous, be courageous, be courageous. Get fear out of your life. Of men. Don't fear men. Don't be what Ayn Rand called a second-hander. Ayn Rand was a atheistic philosopher, novelist who wrote Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead and The Virtue of Selfishness and a whole bunch of other books that I got utterly swept away with about 20 years ago. And uh, she's dead now, and I assume she's in hell because she hated Christianity with a passion Unless she converted at the end. And she thought Christianity was a bunch of baloney. Because it just had to do with altruism. Not courageous standing up for your own uh convictions, but just laying down dead like Jesus on the cross and sacrificing your highest convictions. And she talked about being a second-hander, and she despised it, and so do I. A second-hander is a person who is so weak in what they believe and in their own sense of standing in grace that they're always looking over their shoulder at what others are going to say about what they wear or say or comb their hair or do their makeup or clean their house or drive the car. What are others saying about me? 
That's a weak, sniveling, low, despicable way for a human being created in the image of God and redeemed by the blood of Jesus and destined for glory to live. Who cares what anybody says? You speak the truth. You give an account to the king and you let the chips fall where they will. That's what this text is calling you to do. Now, what are the motives here? What are the motives to speak the truth? Like it says in verse 27, I'll tell you, speak in the light what I show you in the dark. Say upon the housetops what I, you hear whispered. So the point is speaking the truth openly, even when it's controversial. And there are five incentives here. And if you get a hold of them, you will be one courageous person. Or if they get a hold of you. Number one, notice the therefore in verse 26, or the so maybe in your version. So, or therefore, have no fear of them. Well, what's that pointing back to when it says therefore? And the answer is this verse in the preceding one, or these words in the preceding verse. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his own household? Therefore, have no fear of them. You got the argument? If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they call you Beelzebul? Therefore, have no fear of them. That's odd. Let's see. Oh, they're going to call me Beelzebul? I should fear them. No, 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 no. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, they're going to call you that. Therefore, don't be afraid of them. But what's the logic here? The logic is you're in good company when they call you Beelzebul. Because they call Jesus Beelzebul. And Jesus is God. And he's all wise and he's all powerful. And he said exactly what ought to be said on every occasion. And they called him the devil. What do you expect to happen to you? You're in good company. That's the argument. You're with Jesus. You're not above your master. Argument number two. In the middle of verse 26, there's a little word that the NIV drops out. Shame on them. And uh, thank you, Lane Dennis, for taking the initiative to do better in the upcoming ESV. However, Lane, there's Lane Dennis back. I just, there's a new translation coming. Going to be the best translation out there. Lord willing. Because the goal of the translation is to be as literal as you can be and to be as uh, readable as you can be. Well, that's a big challenge. Well, the NIV is a paraphrase. It's just leaving words out right and left. I can't preach from the NIV. I'd have to constantly be pulling rank on my people. However, last Sunday, I preached from Romans 5, 1 and 2. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of that sermon if you're around in the next two days. But in verse 2, the NASB, bless your heart, says, well, the verse starts, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's not right. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's verse 2. Through whom also... 
we have admittance into the grace, this grace, in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. The NIV leaves out also. The RSV leaves out also. And the ESV leaves out also. But we're going to fix that, I hope. Because I built my whole sermon on the word also. Here's the reason. Without the word also, you get, we have peace with God through whom we have access into this grace. And all the commentators who don't pay any attention to Greek and don't read the NASB treat this grace as the peace with God. It can't be the peace with God because of the word also. It's another thing. And why the NIV and the RSV and the brothers over in Cambridge working on the ESV? Don't put it in there. I don't know. So I emailed Wayne Grudem and said, put the also back in, Wayne, because I built my sermon on it this morning. I got to have the word Kai in the text, which is why in our pews we have this, this, this NASB, crummy as it is. Wooden and hard to read, but it's got the words you need. (laughs) Who cares if it's smooth? Now, that was not the point. (laughs) The point is, there's a word for here. goes like this. So have no fear of them. For, here comes an argument. This is incentive number two. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Now, how's that work for your courage? It means that even though when you preach something, many, many people may not get it and it may not be known as true and may not stand on its own two feet out there being praised by everybody. Oh, yes, he said a right thing. But many people saying it's a wrong thing. It's a false thing. He's not telling you the truth. There's coming a day when what was spoken in the dark will be made light. And what was in the secret will be proclaimed on the housetops. It's going to come to light. It's going to be made known. So even though you may not be vindicated now, you will be vindicated later. Take heart, brothers. Life is two seconds long, according to James chapter 4. That's how long a vapor lasts on a good cold day in wheat. Incentive number three, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Now, my paraphrase of that is, fear not. You can only be killed. Which is exactly what it says, isn't it? And do not fear those, don't fear those who can kill the body and can't touch the soul. Fear the one who can cast soul and body into hell. Ah, that's mind boggling. That's radical. That'll change your preaching. That'll change your life. That'll change your ministry. That'll get your people to the mission field with their children in malaria infested places. Oh, we're a bunch of wimps in America. Can't believe how wimpy we are. Oh, it's a closed country. Baloney, there aren't any closed countries. You just can't get out of them. 
And there never has been a safe place for kids. There never has been a safe place. America is the most dangerous country in the world for teenagers. I'd rather lose my kid at 19 to malaria than lose him to the devil at 16 or 29 or 69 any day. Die, Abraham, in Christ rather than live 80 years without him. Don't fear those who can kill the body, brothers. Preach like this to your to your people. Get your people moving into some hard things. Get your young people excited about this. Kids are ready to lay down their lives if somebody will tell them these things. They don't want to just get the latest designer clothes. They think they do. They don't. We know they don't. Well, argument number three. Argument number four. Incentive number four. Verse 30, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, what's the point of that? Don't be afraid. The hairs of your head are all numbered. I think what Jesus wants us to feel when he says that is to count hairs on the head, you got to get really close. And you have to care and spend a lot of time just kind of going, one, two, three. We adopted a little little girl four years ago, and she's African-American. And... Uh, We've learned a whole new thing about hair. Hair's big. And, uh, and my wife devotes three hours to this hair. Because white people adopting African Americans, one of the first assessments, I live in a very multicultural neighborhood, one of the first assessments of us is, you know how to take care of this girl? You gonna make her look stupid? So we we go to the black community and we say, teach us, show us, you know, want to do this right here. Three hours, little tiny braids. Jesus, Jesus is over us. He's close to us. He's near to us. You remember that word in Second Timothy near the end, I think it's 417, where Paul says, everybody deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and help me to preach the gospel fully so that it might be known throughout the whole of Caesar's household. The Lord stood by me. I love that picture. There's a picture on my wall I grew up with and now it hangs in the hallway of our house. Some of you may have it. It's on a, it's on a log. It's painted on a log and it's a, a, a young teenager in a boat with a big steering wheel on a boat like this and the clouds are dark and Jesus Bigger than life, like Tom says, he's behind him with his hand on his shoulder. Raise your hand if you ever seen that picture. A well, lot. That hung at the foot of my bed for 18 years. 
I think probably I owe that more than my preacher when I was growing up. But what that communicated to me about the Lord stood by me. My teenage years were hard. And he was never, never far away. You know, there's something very striking about this. The hairs of your head are all numbered because in Luke 21, when Jesus is describing how horrible it's going to be in the last day, he says, you will be delivered up to governors. You will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And some of you they will kill. And one verse later, it says, but not a hair of your head will perish. What? They catch your head in a basket. I'll catch your head. Is that what he means? Chop off your head, I'll catch your head. Something like that. Not a hair of your head will perish when they kill you. You get a hold of that truth and you will become one free and radical, countercultural citizen of heaven in the Disneyland called America. Last incentive. Verse 31. You are of more value than many sparrows. Verse 29. Not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. You mean more to God than all the birds in the world as his child. And not one bird, not one little sparrow tips over and falls dead to the ground without God's purpose in it. Which means that everything that befalls you is of God for your good. Cancer, I just laid a 23-year-old young man in our church into the ground a week ago. At least I was part of it. I didn't do it all. And I had done the wedding for him and his wife seven weeks earlier. And that, too, is for the good of his wife at 21 years old and the good of his mom and dad. In fact, I would testify his mother and dad started coming to our church six months before he was diagnosed with leukemia. And they wouldn't mind me telling you this because they've testified repeatedly to it. They said, Pastor John, we would have gone insane. This was halfway through the treatments. Would have gone insane were it not for the sovereignty of God that we've heard proclaimed week after week. Henry Martin, the missionary who died at age, what, 30 or 29? If God has work for me to do, I cannot die. You are immortal until your work is done. 
Christians ought to be the freest, most risk-taking, most radical people in the world. Don't yield to the spirit of the age, brothers. Take up whatever sacrifices are necessary and whatever suffering is necessary. And we'll talk about that more later. And don't be afraid of controversy. Be courageous. Let's pray.